0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this podcast episode focused on migraine management entitled, Your Questions About Migraine Treatment Answered. Our learning objectives for this podcast are to employ new migraine-specific agents for both treatment of acute attacks and preventive treatment, and to individualize migraine care plans to ensure that each patient's unique needs are addressed, ultimately improving symptoms and quality of life. My name is Dr. Don Buse. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Neurology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, a licensed psychologist, and a fellow of the American Headache Society. Today, I will be joined by my eminent colleague and friend, Dr. Michael Reddy, senior staff physician at Baylor, Scott & White, and also a fellow of the American Headache Society. Dr. Reddy and I will be addressing questions about migraine treatment that were recently posed by Prime Med learners like you during our live sessions. Let's start with what is the place of butalbital, acetaminophen, caffeine combinations, if any, in migraine management?
1: Uh, that's a real good question, uh, Dawn, and I think it's a ten thousand dollar question. Um, I, I I think limited. I'm someone in the school of thought that I would never say never. Um, the American Headache Society Choosing Wisely campaign had several reasons for limiting the use of this particular medication. It is an off-label use for medication. It's indicated only for tension type or muscle contraction headaches, which kind of shows how long ago this medication was actually developed. But what we see is infrequent dosing of this medication is associated with an increased frequency of migraine headaches. And uh, it's generally accepted that dosing five days a month will induce migraines to come more often. And you will also see, because the half-life of this medication is very long, it is associated with long-lasting cognitive impairment. So you can have issues that go beyond the duration of headache using this medication. Now, who might be a candidate that I would use this in if it has a limited window? And it might be a, a geriatric patient who may not be able to afford some of the newer non-triptan-based medications. They're only using it once or twice a month, or someone with cardiac risk factors who can't afford some of the newer medications, and I limit their controls. Now, I'm in a dedicated headache practice, and I think I have maybe six patients that I write butalbital for, but I write to where I'm giving them no more than four or five pills a month. And I'll I'll give them refills for once a month. And I tell them, this is all you can get from me. And if you're needing more than this, we need to look at something else for you.
0: Yeah, thank you, Michael. So let's switch over to our next question. It's a really good one. Are varicose veins in the lower extremities a contraindication to tryptan therapy? Now, I really like the logic that this uh, participant uh, is following here. And Michael, you and I got to talk about this as we were reading through our participant questions. Not that either of us know of, but according to the FDA label for triptan therapies and the terms of approval, when you go to the specific triptans, the labels do state that triptans are contraindicated in uncontrolled arterial hypertension, coronary artery disease, and in patients after stroke or TIA. So, Michael, what's your clinical take on that?
1: Yes, no, um, and and I would agree, and the varicose veins do not necessarily fall into that category of cardiac contraindications because uh, the varicose veins are an issue of the venous return and not necessarily the arterial con, uh, uh, blood flow, which is what the blood pressure, coronary artery disease, and stroke and TIAs are dealing with.
0: Excellent, thank you. Okay, our next question gets into a hot topic area. The question is how concerned might you be about interactions between SNRIs or SSRIs and triptans? with regards to the side effects or serotonin syndrome. So this is a great topic and something that has been really tackled by the American Headache Society because providers would get so many calls back from pharmacists and others being worried about this potential interaction. So the AHS did issue a position paper that states that this is not a primary concern. They are commonly used together and it's more of a theoretical risk However, we would be remiss in not letting the listeners know there is an FDA black box warning that this can happen, serotonin syndrome. However, there are not significant data. So, Michael, where do you fall on all of this?
1: Uh, I'm not really concerned about it at all. There, I, I think you can say there is a theoretical risk, but that you would look at it and saying, how do you know it is from the combination and not just from the risk of the antidepressant itself? And if you go in and look at the AHS position paper, it is actually a beautifully written scientific paper because it goes through the development of uh, serotonin syndrome and outlining how it is very unlikely from a scientific perspective that triptans will be associated with serotonin syndrome in almost all cases. Now. Granted, someone can have a variation of receptor anatomy, and you may see it on that rare occasion, but in a a sense, that's like winning the lottery. It's that one in a million, not something that is going to be happening all the time. And in all honesty, given the coincidence that we see the comorbidity of depression, anxiety, mood disorders, and migraine, and the co-prescription of triptans, and SSRIs, SNRIs, we would have seen this in numbers. And we're not, and so it's not a realistic issue for almost everyone.
0: Okay, let's jump into some questions about our monoclonal antibodies, CGRP-targeted MABs. And this question is, do you recommend prescribing CGRP-targeted MABs in a primary care setting? And how would you go about training staff to administer? Well, I do a lot of epidemiology research, so I'm gonna remind all of us that of the people who seek care for migraine, 80% seek care in primary care. So primary care is the place to be for migraine, and certainly primary care professionals should feel comfortable to administer all appropriate migraine therapies that they find appropriate for their patient, and in fact, The American Headache Society 2021 Consensus Statement, which is authored by Jessica Ilani and colleagues, has a really nice table for when to consider MABS for prevention. Um, And some of the guidelines you're gonna see in that table include not only that the patient's 18 years of age, Um, but also that they had tried and been failed by at least two previous prior preventives, which if there's someone with an episodic migraine is going to be the traditional oral preventives. If they have chronic migraine or migraine on 15 or more days per month, that's also going to include onabotulinum toxin A as one of those that could have been tried and didn't work well enough for them, either with efficacy or tolerability. And then for the folks with episodic migraine, you're going to want to assume that they have significant disability, which you can measure on Midas or the HIT-6 or another way, even by asking how's migraine affecting your life. For those with chronic migraine, you don't have to also document that disability because with headache on 15 or more days per month, that level of disability is really assumed. So for more information on when and how to prescribe MABS, check out that American Egg Society 2021 consensus statement. So Michael, what's your clinical take on that?
1: What we find with the CGRP monoclonal antibodies that are designed for injections, these are all designed to be administered by the patients themselves. And so what you can find is to seek out the um, pharmaceutical representatives and get a dummy device. And all three monthly injectables come in a syringe that can be administered or an auto injector and you can be provided with those. There are videos online either on YouTube or on the respective websites that can demonstrate how to do this and say for example, the device for galconazumab uses uh, a device that had been used for a diabetic medicine for a while. And so they just use the same technology and all of the devices have been studied separately for ease of use. So they are all very easy to use and there's really no fear in that, but you can get the dummy devices.
0: Thank you, Michael. And yes, absolutely, primary care professionals are really the mainstay of providing great migraine treatment. So we absolutely Expect and want all the primary care docs, internal medicine, family medicine, OBGYNs, NPs, and PAs to feel comfortable and confident in caring for people with migraine. If you want to look more into the guidelines on when to prescribe a MAB, that is in the American Headache Society 2021 consensus statement. All right, so on to our next question. Michael, is there any role for low dose ASA in patients who have migraine with aura?
1: Um, no, not that not that you would I- I expect. There has been one trial where low-dose aspirin has been shown as a migraine preventive. Uh, there was a slight benefit seen for men, not women. But I, I don't remember it being as robust enough that would make me say, oh, yes, I want to add this to my armamentarium uh, for migraine prevention.
0: This not included in our guidelines or consensus statement to date. So, there at least the data are not there to date. But good question. Here's another good question that we love. This question we get this a lot. What is the role of nutraceuticals in migraine treatment plans? Um, Mike, I'm going to let you take this well, one. Well, no,
1: I, I I think absolutely a lot. Um, and, and a reason why I I start almost all of my patients who need prevention on the nutraceuticals because it gets back to our understanding about why people have migraine and that being a sensitive brain that is poorly tolerant of change. Well, what are what are drugs? Changes. And you'll find very often people with migraine may not tolerate pharmaceutical interventions well. It's not that they're bad options. It's just very often for people with migraine, you have to start at a very low dose and go up slowly. So in general, I see an, a, a better tolerability for the nutraceuticals and we do have class one evidence for riboflavin 400 milligrams a day i'll tend to dose it at 200 milligrams twice a day it comes as a 100 milligram tablet Uh, there's also class one evidence for butterbur but we're a little bit concerned with liver toxicity with this and so a lot of headache doctors are moving away from this because there are questions as to whether or not the pyrene alkaloids can be safely removed and that's a problem with supplements that are made in this country because they are not regulated to a certain extent. Now, class two recommendations has some of my absolute favorites, and that's coenzyme Q10 at 300 milligrams a day, typically 100 milligrams three times a day. Now, I typically will tell my patients to take 200 milligrams twice a day, um, <clears throat> and then magnesium about 600 milligrams a day. Now, I think the chelated forms of magnesium can be a little bit better absorbed and that would be like a magnesium threonate or a magnesium glycinate. Um, Now, in the American Headache Society consensus statements, they will recommend the magnesium riboflavin and CoQ10. But we also have some studies that show melatonin between three and five milligrams can be as effective as 25 milligrams of amitriptyline. And I will tend to use melatonin if I have a patient that I need to put a a beta blocker because the beta blockade tends to suppress endogenous melatonin secretion. So I will use about three to five milligrams of melatonin about two hours before bedtime. And then that can get me a little bit of an additional migraine preventive therapy.
0: Thank you, Michael. So continuing along this line, the next question is a really hot topic as well what is the role of thc in migraine management or is there a role for thc in migraine management well the data are evolving it's not currently listed in our guidelines or consensus statement because we really haven't had the data yet although it's pretty commonly used um, by people in in places where they're able to obtain it it is Uh, legal for medicinal use in some states, for recreational or any use in some states. Uh, Michael, what are you seeing with your patients?
1: Uh, Well, very limited use because it's not legal here in Texas. But, you know, when I travel to our headache meetings and I hear our colleagues talk in states where it is legal, they're very underwhelmed with the response and they've seen some particular problems. They've seen medication overuse headache come out of THC use. And they also see other issues um, with this. They're thinking there may be more of a benefit with um, CBD oil, but then that would be more in targeted individuals with certain receptors and certain CBD oils, but that's nowhere near refined enough. And I think the best way of looking at this right now is it's not ready for prime time.
0: Right. Thank you. And continuing along these lines of questions, does acupuncture demonstrate benefit in migraine management? You know, this is also an area where data are mixed, and one of the issues is it is hard to study acupuncture. You get high placebo rates, it's hard to separate active from sham acupuncture, and do you really need to have a very skilled acupuncturist, who acupuncturists may be trained in different types of techniques. So there's a lot of variability in acupuncture, which has just made it hard to study. Um, Nonetheless, a lot of patients like it, and the limits are primarily cost because it's often out of pocket, um, and time. Uh, Michael, how do you advise patients when it comes to acupuncture? I I don't
1: discourage it if they can find a a provider, especially typically by word of mouth. Um, I'm not necessarily bothered by the lack of separation between sham and active, because in my mind, what that means is that it works, but it just, it is most likely working in a way that is different from our understanding of how traditional Chinese medicine says it works. Mm,
0: Good point. Good point. Okay, back to a, a, another medication question. Michael, do you ever use prednisone to break up a headache cycle?
1: Yes, I'll use prednisone or dexamethasone uh, to to break uh, a headache cycle. Uh, <clears throat> typically about five days dosing uh, with the prednisone between 60, 80 milligrams a day for five days as a burst therapy or dexamethasone, uh, four milligrams twice a day. Um, uh, for five days and both those are off-label usage but sometimes when you're trying to calm down that inflammation, um, that sterile inflammation that's driving um, the, the migraine, it, it can have a role. I I tend to ask my patients to take it as early in the day as possible especially as you get a little gray hair like me uh, the later in the day you take a steroid the more likely as most of y'all are probably familiar it is to mess with your sleep
0: terrific well thank you that's a lot of great information dr reddy and thank you to our listeners for providing us such great questions to start this conversation that's really helpful so let me just summarize a couple key takeaways First off, the American Headache Society Choosing Wisely campaign advises against the butabatol-containing combinations for migraine management. That's going to include butabatol, acetaminophen, and caffeine. We talked about the nutraceuticals, and nutraceuticals such as riboflavin, coenzyme Q10, melatonin, magnesium, especially in its more bioavailable chelated form, have a role in migraine prevention. The CGRP-targeted MABS and preventive G-PANTS can be used in all migraine types for patients at least 18 years old who have had at least two prior unsuccessful trials of adequate preventive therapy. And finally, THC and acupuncture are not included in current migraine guidelines for acute or preventive therapy, and data on their effectiveness are either lacking or currently mixed. Well, that's all we have time for today. Dr. Michael Reddy, thank you for joining me to answer some common questions that our learners have asked. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there's a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit. Thank you.